0: you guys like seeing joy on people's faces? There's a music video. I don't often watch music videos. I don't even know how I came across it. Probably hearing, watching it on the news or something like that where someone was referencing it. Anyways, there's this music video where a famous band decides to go around all Los Angeles kind of showing up and turning up at all these different weddings. Just out of nowhere. Surprise. Surprise. Um, <clears throat> and it is a fun music video because of the joy that the band produces on the couple getting married, and you can see this very, you know, visually. So what they do is they uh, send out their setup team, and you know, all of a sudden, keep in mind, right? The couple has no idea, supposedly, that uh, the people are going to show up. So during the reception, you know, here comes their setup team out of nowhere, just kind of in the middle of the reception hall to set up a platform with curtains and everything like that. They're setting up a stage. I mean, just imagine how out of place that would seem at your future wedding or the wedding that you had. And people there, in the music video, people are confused. Even maybe it seems a little bit angry. And then out of nowhere, the curtain drops, the music plays, and the newlywed couple's reaction reactions are priceless. It takes a little while for them to realize who exactly is standing in front of them, but eventually, after a few seconds, they understand. And then you see their irritation, their frustration, their confusion in a moment just turn to pure elation. The audience rejoices in the band and their song, and even the band's presence and their surprise. And the band, too, rejoices in the audience's response, their joy, their experience, because the band knows that they have made the couple's day, at least in part. There's something so special in seeing people receive a blessing and then rejoicing in the blessing, and more importantly, rejoicing in the one over the blessing. You know, so if they were to play the band's song by the DJ, you know, that's one thing. Yeah, sure, maybe there might be a little bit of excitement. But if you have the band right in front of you, giving you hugs, rejoicing with you in your wedding, then, you know, there's something very different. There's something really special about this, this idea of seeing people receive a blessing and then rejoice in the blessing and rejoice in the giver of it. In our passage, we see God indeed blessing. And we see God's people responding, rejoicing in the blessings. And then, of course, more importantly, God himself. Our passage is found in the book of Ephesians. If you're using one of the black Bibles there right in front of you, it can be found on page 976. I invite you to turn there with me now. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background and set up the series here. We begin a new series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church church. At Ephesus, it was an ancient. It was a city, an ancient. It was an ancient Greek city, which today can be found on the coastal areas of Turkey. City of Ephesus, and Paul previously he had already been to the city there, so he had some degree of relationship with them, and you can see that in Acts chapter nineteen. And there he saw some degree of success because there he's preaching the gospel. He also saw some degree of persecution, and the city is in an uproar, and he suffers for the sake of the gospel. And that was something that wasn't occasional for Paul. That was something that seems to be very regular. In fact, as he's writing this letter, he is in jail. He calls himself a prisoner for the Lord Jesus in chapter 3, verse 1. But yet, being the faithful apostle he was, he continues to encourage the church as a prisoner. He, he has this church on mind, and he wants them to be rooted in grace. He wants their, the foundation of their very Christian lives To be be founded in grace. And this idea of grace kind of headlines the letter there. Look in verse 1. This is a somewhat regular uh, introduction here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you see, written by Paul, written to Ephesus, written to the Christians, and he says, I want you to have grace, no grace. And you see this kind of all throughout this letter. This morning we dive into this wonderful book starting with Ephesians, and we'll just look at, uh, right now we'll look at verses 3 to 14, and we'll see what what this what the main point is. The main point, big idea for the passage, if you are a Christian, your posture in life is to be one of constant praise. The posture that you are to take in life is to be one of constant praise. Constant praise to God because of His sovereign grace in Christ. If you're taking notes at the big idea, your posture in life is to be one of constant praise to God because of His sovereign grace in Christ. I'll go ahead and read that section. You can follow along. Verses 3 to 14. It begins like this. To the praise of his glory. Point number one. We see in verse three. There at the very beginning. The Christian posture is a posture of praise. The Christian posture is a posture of praise. It says there in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's praise right there. And this praise leaves this entire section. Basically it's one entire sentence. From verses three to fourteen in Greek. One sentence Basically. Paul's posture is one of praise. You know, we can learn a whole lot about uh, a person by a person's letters. You know, I enjoy reading other people's mail. (laughs) Don't worry. So if you invite me, I'm not going to be reading through your mail. I mean, uh, you know, the letters that I've enjoyed have been letters of those who have been long gone. So letters of Jonathan Edwards. The letters of Andrew Fuller, for example. An 18th century English pastor. Uh, known for starting uh, uh, what some people call the modern's mission movement, there. So I love diving into their letters because in front of their words, in front of their sentences, in front of their paragraphs, you see, you, you become acquainted with their values, their mission, their posture. In this case, here we have the Apostle Paul's posture a man who is an apostle chosen by God to lay the foundation of the church. That's in large part what it means to be an apostle there are no more today at least capital a apostles Um, and paul has this posture of praise because of what god has done for him in christ this is a posture of praise blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ it headlines the whole entire letter you know if you're a christian you respond maybe and say of course this is the posture of the apostle paul to have. Yet many of us, I bet, find this posture pretty foreign. Isn't it somewhat common for us to wake up from our slumber shouting, not eulogies of praise to God, singing his blessings, right when the alarm clock wakes you up, but rather shouting cursings? I am shamefully guilty of this. Uh, So recently I've been waking up to, not my alarm clock, but this little tiny bird uh, whose chirp is relentless. And I heard him this morning. I was already awake. I heard him this morning. 6.23. That's when he goes off chirping so diligently, so relentlessly. It's clear he has a different mission than I do. Um, This really bugs me. I want to wake up to my alarm clock, especially when I'm tired. I mean, you know, the example is relatively silly, isn't it? You know, this little tiny bird that wakes me up when I have a different agenda than the bird does. But God help me, God help us, if our praise to the Creator is dampened by little Tweety Bird. See how weak our hearts are, my heart is, right there in that moment? I mean, it's scary to think about what is to come if the seemingly little things, literally little things... Disrupt my focus, my knowledge of Christ's blessings, the experience of Christ as my blessing. When little things like that disrupt our focus on God and his ever-steady kindness and grace to me at every single moment of my life. I mean, what will happen when bigger and more threatening situations uninvitingly disrupt our plans? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Having wrestled so deeply with your own sin and guilt and shame, and those things come uninviting to our lives as Christians. And somehow those things become larger and more overwhelming in our sight, right? Because you can feel it more overwhelming, more powerful. It seems than God, His grace and His power to save. But regardless of our experience. This is what the Christian's posture ought to be. It ought to be this way. We know that it isn't always, but it ought to be. The question is, why? Or when we are feeling like it's hard for our hearts to praise, well, what exactly is there to do? Why ought we to praise? This brings us to point number two. Praise be to God because he is the giver of all blessings. Praise be to God because he is the giver of all blessings. You know, thankfully, as this passage reminds us, God's grace is ever-present with us and is powerful enough to outflank our discouragements. So in our lives, when we're discouraged here, God's blessings kind of swoop in to outflank the discouragement. And this passage here reminds us of that. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he just hits kind of like the double-click button, so to speak. And he wants us to know who this God is of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So here God calls us through this text, through inspiring Paul to write these things, no matter how you might feel, even right now, to look upward. (coughs) To look upward, to see God again in his grace like sun rays busting through the clouds, So, according to verse 3, is our Father in heaven with His blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, that's Him, look up there, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So it is into this world that God reaches down and kind of parts the darkened clouds and pours spiritual blessings. Not one, not two. But every spiritual blessing. As we consider this posture of praise that we ought to have, I wonder what your posture is towards these spiritual blessings. What is your, your posture towards these spiritual blessings? That actually informs us what our posture will be like towards God. The reason why I ask the question, right, is because Paul's assumption. In fact, the whole entire Bible's assumption is that we do not deserve the blessings. There is no way, according to the Bible, that we deserve these blessings. And that's supposed to inform the way in which we praise, the way in which we receive these blessings. The Bible says we are not deserving of any spiritual blessing, any of God's favor. Man cannot work for or earn any of God's favor. If we could, then God's blessings would be our wage, what you earn. What is your due? It becomes something that he owns us. And therefore, if we actually think that we can earn God's blessing, therefore God is assigned to the duty of payroll manager. That's that's, that's him over there. Those of you who work, I'm sure you've never met payroll. You probably don't even care about payroll, except for maybe payroll experts back here. Um, But most people, you know, they're not really appreciating payroll because you just want your money. If you think you can earn God's blessings, then you relegate God to payroll, some distant office over there, somebody you don't really talk to, but someone who delivers you your wage. Regarding man's work, you know, the only thing that man works himself into is sin. Way back in Genesis 1 and 2, we see there that God creates man, and then in chapter 3 of the Bible, right? Chapter 3 of the Bible, we are introduced to the problem. Man rebels. He sins against his God. He earns for himself just condemnation and judgment because they basically said, you know, buzz off, I don't really care about you. And they chose instead not to live under the authority of the king, but to live under the authority of themselves. Man does not deserve and cannot earn God's favor. Look over at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We get there in a handful of weeks. And you see, this is the mindset of Paul here. like the rest of mankind. That's the backdrop that Paul has in his mind. That's human reality. That's the state that we all find ourselves in. We are simply sinful people and the evidence of it, the evidence of it, I mean, just turn on the news and you see it all around the world. Do you see it in your own neighborhood? You know, do you lock your apartment door, your house door, your car doors before you leave that thing? Are you happy to leave it unattended with the keys in the ignition no, that's evidence of sin. Ultimately, we have all disobeyed God and rebelled against our Maker. We have indeed dislocated ourselves from our Creator and Maker. This realm is dislocated from God. Even the spiritual realm is dislocated from From God, the creator and maker. So you see when verse 3 talks about God's movement at all towards sinners. Any movement at all towards sinners that results in God bestowing every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That speaks of God's grace. It speaks of his mercy. Where God in his sovereignty and power and all ability makes things right where we made them wrong. Thus we need every spiritual blessing. We need the Spirit, God's Spirit, to make things right in our lives. We need the Spirit of Christ to deliver us these spiritual blessings. Well, praise be to God, the originator of blessing, who takes grace and mercy upon us, parts the clouds, and pours out every spiritual blessing. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, I hope you are excited to find out what these spiritual blessings are. And how you can get them. But they might not be at what you expect. You know, there are a lot of people who wrongly say that or act like God's blessings are primarily material, primarily financial. But did you notice in our passages today, as I read it through quickly, that God's blessings are spiritual. And they all address our sinful condition. And this helps us at least understand what was important to Paul. Right? If you're investigating this and maybe you think the Bible is just literature... You know, you can still learn what the author is saying and what's on his mind. We are sinners. God has given us this amazing blessing and those blessings are spiritual in nature. Well, let's go ahead and move into the blessings of God. And here, verse 4 to 14, this is like a catalog of blessing. Uh, These verses read like a shipping manifest of heavenly blessing where God, with all of his divine resources up there trying to figure out what Uh, people, how people can be blessed, and so here's the shipping manifest. Or you can think of it like the airdrop inventory. He goes to rescue his people and defeat the enemy and he determines what his his, uh, army, his military is going to go ahead and drop to save the people and also to judge. Imagine God, the true humanitarian, as he alone knows what human flourishing is and requires, and so he sends out his Spirit to drop them. If, just look again at, at uh, verse 4 there. You, you see here that all of these blessings have to do with this fa- a family metaphor. I mean, oftentimes God uses all sorts of metaphors to describe salvation. Here he heavily camps out on this family metaphor. So if you look there at, at verse 4, right, we have one blessing is this election to holiness. Even as he chose us before him, Or in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's election unto holiness. Another one here is uh, there as we continue verse 4 and then verse 5 is predestination to sonship. He in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then if you go down further you see there in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So these all have to do with family stuff. this election to holiness, uh, predestination to sonship, and then predestination to an inheritance. But before we look at those things, these particular aspects of this family metaphor, you see what, what binds them all together? It's this thing called election, predestination. So that means if you are a Christian, that means that it says, as it says there, before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in Christ. That means you, Christian, have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So the natural question is, why me? Right? Why us? We've already seen that we cannot work for God's favor, though some insist that we can Some insist that God's election is based on some foreseen faith or some foreseen work that God looks down the corridor of time. He sees that you will choose him and then he responds by choosing you. So there, there basically, uh, God consults the future and responds to your choice by choosing you after. But the Bible knows actually of no such thing. I don't know what exactly you were taught on the doctrine of election, so let's just set those things aside, whatever it is that you've been taught. Uh, if, this thing kind of, if this idea kind of makes you, um, if it ruffles your feathers a little bit, which I expect it might, it certainly did when I came across it. Let's just go ahead and set that down for a moment, What you've heard in the past, or maybe what your friends have told you, what you've gotten arguments about, all that kind of stuff. Let's do that in order to examine the evidence from just the storyline of the Bible. Let's not talk about the isms, okay? Uh, let's just look at the storyline of the Bible to see God moving in his sovereign grace to elect or to move in salvation. So in the beginning, right, God creates, man sins, then God saves. That's God's divine initiation or his initiative rather to save. It all starts with God's sovereign grace. He sovereignly creates, man sins, then he sovereignly saves. It seems pretty clear from Genesis if you move all the way through Revelation. You think about Abraham, right? We've just been through, uh, working through a lot of uh, Genesis. Did God choose Abraham? Or did Abraham choose God? Mm -hmm. The Bible says that God chose Abraham. I mean, he was a pagan man in a pagan land. Yet in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses him despite his sin. And then he continues to lavish all of these blessings on Abraham, even though Abraham, almost at every single point in the story, seems to be going wayward. Yet God, in His faithfulness and His great love, is faithful to Abraham. Take Israel for example. Here again, I'm just moving through the biblical storyline. Here, uh, why is it that God chose Israel? Deuteronomy you know, seven seven. This is, this verse says, "The Lord did not did not set His affection on you and choose you." Because you were more numerous than other peoples, as in stronger or more mighty, or anything inherent in themselves. And then he says, For you were the fewest of all people. If anything there, it says you were the ones who needed the most help, and so therefore I chose you. And then Moses goes on here. He says, But he says, But you want to know Israel as you're about to go into the promised land to inherit the heavenly blessings that God has already reserved for you. If you want to know why it is that you are inheritors of this promise, He says, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He says, I chose you not because you have done anything, but because the Lord loved you. We fast forward even further into the church today. What moved God to send Christ? Was there something so appealing in us that we had worked for our salvation, let's say, or we were so sexy that God said, hey, you know what I want then? John 3.16 says, you know one of the most famous Bible verses in in the Bible there? It's God's divine initiation. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He gave his only son. And even that verse right there has the background of the fact that we are all sinners that don't deserve any of his blessings. Right, so when we see, see there that God so loved the world, as Don Carson says, he says, well, we shouldn't think God's love is so amazing because the world is so large. His love is so large, so much larger than ours. There's seven billion people and he has love for every single one of them. No, John understands the world to be enshrouded in darkness. And so when we see here that God so loved the world, we're supposed to say, wow. God's love is so great because the world is so bad. That's the depth to which God sees sinners, and then he goes in his far-reaching arm to deliver them, all by his sovereign grace here. God's election is not based on a beauty pageant where we don our own righteousness, where we walk the runway, talk about all the good we have done and all the wisdom we think we have. God's election here is based on God's sovereign grace. So look over there at chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says "Therefore, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not, let's be clear, okay, Paul says this, let's be really clear, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God as a result of works. gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you got to keep in mind here that with all this grace, with all this gift, you know, Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. Paul's actually in a wonderful position to say this, as the executioner of first century Christians. By his own admission, the chief sinner, chief of all sinners. I mean, on one level, I would hate to be his position. Just imagine putting yourself in his position Having been the executioner of first century Christians, imagine how many bad memories he may have carried with him. You think he saw regularly the faces of those who were dying and the last breaths they took emblazoned on his eyes? You know, we think that we might be a little discouraged and our posture is not one of praise to God. But imagine Paul and his struggle here. If anybody has any reason to be just a little bit discouraged because of sin and their guilt and their shame, is it not Paul? Letting sin, guilt, and shame eclipse God in His grace. But then again, how fitting is it that God would choose a man so sinful... To be the one to proclaim his sovereign grace. With his sin ever before him, he is in the perfect position to behold the height, the depth, the length and width of God's love and grace to him in Christ. All at his sovereign grace and mercy. So that's election. That's what ties together all of these family metaphors that we see here. God choosing Sinners to be part of his family and adopting them into his family. You know, this metaphor I think is so helpful, so useful because it's so tangible. We all know what it's like to be in a family, whether we come from dysfunctional families. I mean, all of us to some degree come from dysfunctional families. We know what it's like to want for the perfect father, the perfect mother, the perfect guardian, whatever have you, to be in that perfect family. I saw some video recently of uh, Francis Chan. And he was talking about how he had adopted this girl who was 16 years old. Now I believe she might be 18 or something like that. And he said that uh, the reason what motivated him to do this was because he knew of God's adoption of him. Where he was outcast. Where he was struggling. Where he was unwanted. Where he couldn't save himself and he realized that that was god's adoption of him in his grace and in his sovereign mercy and that's what moves him eventually moved him eventually to adopt not one but i think multiple children he has seven children right now that's just a little picture this human adoption that we know here that some of us have experienced indeed is a little tiny reflection of the perfect love and grace and mercy that god has towards outcasts those who are unwanted you look there, blessing number one, verse number four, we have the election to holiness there. I mean, some people might be tempted to read that and say, okay, well, is God saying that we've been elected to do something? Like, how is that exactly a family metaphor? The roots here of election actually go all the way back to Israel in the Old Testament. So I mentioned earlier Deuteronomy chapter seven. Uh, Let's just go ahead and turn there right now so we can find some bearing and understand this election uh, more carefully, more biblically. As I had mentioned earlier, uh, God had chosen Israel out of his own sovereign grace. And look at what he calls them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. It's hugely important for the New Testament to know how God functioned in the Old Testament towards his people then. He says, For you, Israel, are a people holy. To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then he goes on to speak about that verse that I read earlier. How it's all by God's sovereign grace that he had elected them, chosen them. So here you, you notice that here they're chosen to be holy, but holy to the Lord your God. It's not just to do certain things. Don't think of holiness and blamelessness like that. Think, I have been elected to don the same characteristics of my father. Two, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, go ahead and turn back there. Right, He said that we have been chosen that we should be holy and blameless before him. Like his wonderful little children that he has adopted. Imagine that the father who adopts, the mother who adopts. Seeing their children play and become like the parent possibly. <clears throat> living before them. That's relationship language. So even when we see there that we've been elected to holiness, we should think very much relationship. To display the character of God. The father. The, the next blessing that we can move on to there is Adoption. Uh, which we've obviously this undergirds a whole conversation that we're having there. It says more specifically the ESV in verse four: In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So there, you know what He's doing. If you if you are a gal here, don't think that He's singling you out and kind of pushing you out from this inheritance or this adoption. Uh, the custom here at this point in time was that if I had an inheritance, my inheritance would go to my sons. So isn't it awesome here that Paul, he's kind of redrawing the boundaries of customs in the Father's household. He says, look, women and men. That's who he's writing to. That's the audience he's writing to. He says, men and women are adopted as sons, brought into his household and are rightful heirs of everything that he has. We have access to the heavenly storehouse of all the heavenly blessings. And he picks up and this theme of inheritance in the next uh, blessing there in verse 11 that we look at. So there we've been brought into the father's household not to earn the inheritance, but there we are assigned a portion of the inheritance in him. Verse 11 says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. You know, Peter says that this This uh, inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for his people. And indeed he goes on and says, and God is shielding you to lay hold of that inheritance. He's preserving you until you lay hold of that inheritance. The concept is similar there when he says that he gives you, in verse 13, the spirit of of course, these are all spiritual blessings so of course he's going to give you the spirit and he gives the spirit there to be a down payment right he pays the first thing God and his faithful and he says here you go and without doubt we can bank on him to come through with the rest of it as we obtain the inheritance that is future a future salvation living in glory with God that's what he refers to there when he's speaking of this inheritance But there is another blessing here that God showers down upon us. If you look there in verse 7, redemption and forgiveness. These blessings here are blessings that get us access to the Father. So even still, when he speaks about redemption and forgiveness, we should think very much still family relationship. Think about the Father who accepts his repentant son. Just like the father in the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15. There the son returns to his father after seeing his folly and wanting to live on his own, apart from his good father. But yet after learning his lesson, he comes back and he is repentant. The story says that the father leaps when he sees his son. And then he runs, contrary to cultural custom. He runs towards the son and receives him gladly in compassion. That story would make no sense if the son had not seen his error Or if he had seen his error and just refused to acknowledge it. Or if the son continued to live in his father's house but hated him the whole time. The story would read very differently. In a story like that, the son is the foolish boy king over the house. And God is the great, or should we say, the weak enabler. Unable to stand for good. Unable to lead. And there is no reconciliation. Just an enabling that leads to condemnation. But here our Father grants repentant sinners redemption through Christ's blood. That speaks again to our state and the nature before God having earned for ourselves just condemnation. There is a debt to be paid to this God. Yet God in His free grace and His sovereign mercy gives us redemption through the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses. That should amaze you if you remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, when it says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Yet for some reason, God grants us forgiveness and redemption. And it's through that, that's the door through which we become His sons. That's our God-given airdrop inventory that outflanks our discouragement. Election to holiness, blamelessness, living before Him. Election as sons. Which implies the election to inheritance. He takes us into, our family, into his family. And all through the work of Jesus Christ. Through the blood of his forgiveness. This brings us to point number two. Or sorry, point number three. Point number three, praise be to God for Christ. The sphere of all God's blessings. The sphere of God's blessings. You know, Christ is indeed the culmination of God, all God's saving purposes towards us from eternity past into eternity future. Look at the climax or the high point of verses, in verses 9 and 10 of this great eulogy of praise to God. Look there, of course, 7 and 8, he's talking about forget, forgiveness, the redemption. Uh, talks about how God lavished this grace. He lavished this grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. But you notice that it is in Christ that this mystery of his will is set forth, put forward, displayed so that everyone on earth would know. And this mystery, he said, look, this mystery comes from eternity past. So where he hatched the plan to give his grace in his sovereignty, where he hatched that in eternity past, here the mystery is finally, after tumbling thousands, billions into eternity past of years, it finally lands, touches down here on earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is revealed in Christ. Don't think mystery as in this is something that we can never understand. That's not what he means. This mystery is something that God himself had previously concealed, but then has now revealed in Jesus. Previously concealed, now revealed in Jesus. And this is God's grace from eternity past. And this grace towards you, if you are a Christian, this grace comes tumbling into reality, into the present, where God sends Christ to take on flesh in this present age for you, to live a life, Of perfect righteousness for you. To die on the cross bearing the wrath that you deserved. To pay your debt and expect nothing in return. He does that for you. God's grace in the present.
1: But not only that
0: here. You see this this great grand symphony of grace moving through time here. It starts from eternity past. Breaks into eternity future. And then is secured for eternity future verse 10 god says that god's plan in christ was a plan for the fullness of time that is a future climactic point in time where god unites or sums up or brings to summation all things in christ things in heaven and things on earth that's final universal reconciliation or universal pacification it doesn't mean that everybody is saved but it means that he writes everything everything is ordered up in him earthly realm spiritual realm these things are put right in christ through his salvation and also through his judgment so when God's saving you christian he hatches the plan in grace from eternity past then he actually saves by his grace as he gives us christ's blood for your forgiveness for your redemption and then in christ god gives you a foretaste of what god will do in the future by his grace and then he delights to do so summing up the universe in Christ so here as he, look, as he wants us to see this grand uh, eternal plan of God towards sinners you know here we should have our mind blown you know forget being forget having your mind blown by interstellar trying to figure out all what what exactly is going on I got to see the movie eight times here God says you want to have your mind blown he says you look at my grace that was hashed from eternity past, and now I set it forth on you. And then you're going to have it in the beginning, in, in the end. And there is grace, you see, is supposed to outflank any discouragement we have in the present. Whatever doubts we might have or might be tripped up by over what we've done, the sins we've committed, the guilt we have, the shame we experience. He says, you look at the grace from eternity past, you look at the grace from eternity fe- to eternity future, and you be enveloped and secure in this grace. You know, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, I hope you see a little bit more clearly why Christians are referred to as Jesus freaks. You know, don't think that we are Jesus freaks merely because we think that God is, a Jesus is a great guy. Christians are known to be Jesus freaks because he is the exclamation to time. The exclamation point to time. All of time is heading to one final focal point. And that point is Christ, the summation of the entire universe in Christ. And he's just not the instrument used to kind of tie up the the universe in a bow. In order that we could marvel at the universe and say, wow, how awesome is that? According to God, Christ is summing up and is the summation. He is the main point. He is the exclamation point. He is the focal point. That we are to marvel at. So for us Christians. This is where our salvation is going. Praise God. Our salvation is under Christ the Savior. Who died on the cross for sins. And rose from the dead. So that sinners would be saved by his grace. And all these blessings that we experience. They fall underneath the supremacy of Christ. As he wraps up the universe. And sums it up all in him. I mean what a benevolent God is that. That it just so happens that he's going to right the whole entire world by forgiving tons of people. You want mercy and grace? I give it to you. And that's how he sums up the universe so that he would be exalted. Paul in his letter to Colossians says, For by him all things were created, he's speaking about Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And for him. You know, non Christian, if you are visiting with us, and if Christ is the King, which we believe he is, and he is going to put everything in their right place, the question we need to be asking is what happens if we reject him? What happens if we are outside of the blessing, the sphere of Jesus Christ? Well, that means we aren't adopted into his family, but we remain rebels. It means we will never have an inheritance, but instead we have our lot of judgment in hell. It says we will never be forgiven of our sins, but instead we bear the debt and the weight of that on our own. Why would we want to do that? Christ stands here inviting people into his sphere where there is blessing from eternity and into eternity. And so he calls you to repent of your sins and believe. And you would know this forgiveness, this redemption through his blood, the adoption into, into his family. Repent of your sins and believe. It says there in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word that you're hearing now, of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. He says he gives you the down payment. He gives you the seal. He gives you the promise that God will fulfill every good thing that he promises his people. What a benevolent God we have. Well, we've seen that the Christian life is to be a life lived in a posture of praise. Yeah, that's point number one. Then in points number two and three, we looked at why praise be to God, the originator of all blessing, and then praise be to Christ, who is the sphere of blessing. But what encourages us to take a posture of praise as well is looking at God's posture to bless. God's posture to bless. Right? We look at here how he goes about blessing. This is point number four. God's posture in blessing. Uh, you know, uh, many of us here today, we have unfortunately at times had this crude picture of God. As if he is like this stingy or insecure person with his resources. You know, like we come and get them from God himself, who who stands over the bank of heavenly blessings. And he's like, oh, you know what, I don't know if you're going to use it that well, so maybe I'm not going to give it to you. Um, What really are you going to do with it? Because I might run out here. You know, with that kind of person, nothing is a sacrifice. Nothing is a gift. But everything is some kind of payment. Where you then owe him—it's really a loan—and then you're expected to return it or s- somehow. But this is not God. That's not even the definition of grace. So you just can't even have that understanding there, right? And, and and Paul here, God Himself wants to draw our attention to something repeated three times in verses five, nine, and eleven. There's this phrase that says, "According to the purpose of His will." According to the purpose of His will. Uh, well, Why is Paul so determined that we know that this is according to the purpose of his will? You know, that might sound a little bit cold, especially if we already have this tweaked understanding of who God is. But actually, when it says purpose, if you have a sensitive conscience, I want to speak directly to you. If you have a sensitive conscience, maybe you beat yourself up in guilt and shame. This speaks directly to you. When he says there that God fulfills all things according to the purpose of his will. The word purpose there in Greek is to convey pleasure. God's pleasure in blessing you. So when you think that God is the holder of blessings, don't think of him as a cold, bored, disinterested bank teller. Just dying to clock out to then go and do what he really wants to do. If God blesses us according to the pleasure of His will, then doling out heavenly blessings is what God does. It's what He desires to do. So when it comes to repentant sinners, this is what He does. Pleasure in forgiveness. Pleasure in redeeming sinners who are hostile towards Him. You see how benevolent, omnibenevolent he is. Every single facet he is, no matter what he's doing, is benevolence. Just think of you. If you're holding any grudges, you know, are you omnibenevolent to the people who have uh, rebelled against you? Maybe to some of your own children whom you wrestle with this, or friends who've turned their backs on you? Are you benevolent? You just you're just dying to shower praise on them, dying to shower blessings upon them. No, but that's who God is. This is. What he does. Christian, why is it so hard to conceive of God like this? You ever feel burdensome burdensome to God? You ever feel like a burden to God? You know, maybe you sin and you sigh. You know, we are a blot to God. We wonder, I don't want to have God I have to ask God to clean me again. When we experience guilt and shame, and so we want forgiveness, there we think, oh, we're taking up too much time of God. We need, we desperately need His help, but then we think, He's just too busy. According to our passage, friends, this is not God's character. Friends, do not believe the lies that you, His child, are a burden to God, (laughs) You know, in these verses, we are to run to God the Father to secure His grace. I mean, that's what the Father is. That's what He does. And so He calls His children to run to Me, run to Me. It's like God says in these verses: "Look, you you need a little uplifting. You have a sensitive conscience." He says, "I want you to look back, if you can clock at all, grace in eternity past." He says, "That that's what I was towards you, even before you were born, even before the world began." That's what I was towards you, in grace. I delighted in my plans to save you. It was indeed my pleasure. He says, from eternity past, I saw you helpless and without anyone to care for you. And I delighted in you. I took pleasure in adopting you. It was my pleasure. Verse 5. From eternity past, I saw you broken with sin, unable to save yourself... And I delighted in redeeming you. I delighted to forgive you. Really, it was my pleasure. Verses 7 to 10. And then he says, you, look, you want to look into the future. Look, I know you might be discouraged right now. I know you might feel like I'm going to cast you out in your doubt. I know you might feel a great deal of weakness, thinking that I, the good shepherd, have somehow lost you. He says, I want you to look into eternity, eternal future, if you can clock it at all. And know this great and marvelous inheritance that awaits you. That's all for you. In grace. You're not a burden. And I delight to give it to you. At every single step of the way, our omnibenevolent God and Father delights over saving us. Delights over you as an individual. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, The Lord takes delight in his pleasure. You see the posture there? That's God's posture in saving sinners every single step of the way. You're tempted right now. You feel like you need grace to deliver you. God stands over the storehouse of heavenly blessings just waiting, just waiting for you to come and draw from it. To draw from Christ. You know how I imagine this? I imagine God like to be heavenly Amazon. <laughs> to be heavenly Amazon. And He has same day delivery. He has instant delivery. And when in our moment of need... He sends the blessing right there. It could be in like a person giving you a word from God. It could be the word of God itself. It could be the deeper conviction. It could be, you know, the content of a song that you're hearing that we've sung in church or something like that. And and those are his little same day, instant day deliveries. And he just kind of holds back with all of his heavenly hosts, just in his delight and pleasure, just kind of waiting. You know, is A.J. going to get it? He opens the door and then, like the video that I mentioned in the beginning... He just delights. He just delights in A.J. laying hold of that blessing. And then he looks back at his heavenly host and they're all erupting in praise, right, as they glorify God in who he is. And then he's doing that all the time. At every single moment of the Christian life, whether we are tempted, whether we have fallen, whether we are dying and need forgiveness. That's what he does. It's just pleasure at every single step of the way to deliver, to save, forgive, to love. Friends, when you feel that urge to believe and say God is too busy, God will not do it. I don't want to be a burden to God. We are all blots on His perfection, and He's not going to clean us again. Condemn those lies to hell. They are anti-Christian, and they do not glorify God the way He intends. None of that, you know. If you think back to this this heavenly picture here of God blessing and giving and showering us with heavenly blessings, there. Isn't it awesome that in the process of us laying hold to his blessings, what happens is that God and Jesus Christ gets the grace, or sorry, gets the praise, right? Every time he sees each and every single one of us open the door to lay hold of that marvelous heavenly blessing that God himself owns, and he has a massive storehouse and never runs out, it's inexhaustible, really, it's all Jesus, he is the sphere, right? Jesus gets the glory. One of you lays hold in your temptation to Christ' promises, Jesus gets the glory. And he takes like a little snapshot as if it were, a little snapshot of your face as you are amazed when the curtain drops and there's Christ standing to help you once again. takes a little picture, just puts it up there to be to Christ be the glory. And then there are like millions and millions of these little pictures of people rejoicing in Jesus and Jesus all receives the glory alone. It's nothing that we can work for ourselves, but just God just sits, He sits there blessing people, wants to bless people, out of his good pleasure. What foundation we hope what, what foundation of hope we have in this Christ, in, in God's pleasure to save. You know the new song that we learned earlier Immovable Our Hope Remains. It helps us take advantage of God's pleasure and willingness to save. In verse two, you know, it rehearses the glories of the gospel there. This is eternal life to know. Or this is eternal life. To know the living God in Christ the Son. The Savior will not let us go until His saving work is done. Our debt was great. Obviously, he's referring to our sinfulness and the punishment that we would have had to pay. Our debt was great, as was our need. But now, he says, the price is paid. He brings us to the cross. Who can behold Emmanuel, that is Christ, bleed? Who can Emmanuel bleed and doubt his willingness to save? The answer, of course, is we all do. We all at times doubt Christ's willingness to save, which is why we, uh, un, in our sinfulness and ungodliness, struggle with an ungodly guilt. Who can, Emmanuel, who can behold Emmanuel bleed, we all, and doubt his willingness to save? That is us, and then he says... We trust your willingness to save with resolve. We trust it. It's a prayer. We trust it. Help us trust it, Jesus, when we are weak. It's a declaration as well. We trust it. His willingness to save. He stands ready to save in all of his good pleasure. He is not reluctant to save. He's not reluctant to sanctify. He's is not reluctant, reluctant to help. There is no lost cause with God. There is no life too run down that is beyond God's renovating spiritual power. God does not take chances. So if you are his child, he loves you as the perfect father he is. And his grace is intended for you from eternity past. Secured for you by the promise of Christ's blood. That's grace in the present. And is kept for you in the beloved. That is God's grace in the future. All according to God's good pleasure that we should experience the riches of his grace, the storehouse of heavenly blessing and that he lavishes upon us in Christ. Let's conclude here. You see the strategy of Ephesians 1 verses 1 to 14. Christians are helped, aren't we, to give God all the glory by turning to God, the originator of all God's, of all blessing. We are helped to take the posture of praise by turning to Christ, the sphere of all blessing. And when we are incorporated into him and we are reminded that he is indeed our brother and our savior, we praise. And it's these things, right, all these points that God wants close to our hearts to fan the fire of worship, of gratitude, of praise. This, he says, look at your heavenly father again. And then God advances his plan to make Christ the focal point of the universe. Our hearts are to be moved to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus receives all of the glory. Do you see that refrain there? That really is the, the kind of capstone, if you will. The conclusion of all of the saving work from eternity past. It breaks into the present, into eternity future there in verses 6, 12, and 14. Though we are rebels and we did not deserve His grace, God predestines us for adoption to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 6. As He makes Christ known in the present, as He dies on the cross for our sins, suffering, bearing our burdens, so we therefore have a present hope and a present Savior. In verse 12. To the praise of His glory. And now we have a hope for even greater things in the future. And that's the praise of Of his glory. And so we as sinners are incorporated into him, brought into his family in order that we might praise him, that he might have all of the glory, that we might proclaim the greatness of his name, the fame of his great name, and live for his glory until he returns or until we meet him in the air. That's really what Ephesians is about. He wants to be rooted in grace. Rooted in His mercy that we did not deserve, and just rejoice in it. And know that even where we struggle, every single step of the way, God stands in pleasure, We're waiting to dole out heavenly blessings to you again and again and again, so that Christ would have the glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You for Your work on the cross. God our Father, we thank You for Christ. We thank You for Him who is the sphere in which we find every single spiritual blessing. We thank You, Lord, that You take the position over us, Your children who don't deserve this, and You lavish the riches of Your grace towards us. Just like this word says, in love you choose and you shower these things upon us Father we pray that we would know this when our hearts are down when we are struggling when we feel weighed down and when Satan's arrows are dragging us, holding us back, Father we pray that you would help us by your spirit turn to you once again to behold your character your benevolence we pray, Lord, that we would turn. your Spirit would help us turn back to you to see that you, for the joy set before you, endured the cross for us. That you loved us so much that you would die on the cross, even though you are our perfect one, the righteous one, yet you would die for the unrighteous. Father, we pray that we would be amazed at your grace and your mercy, and we would rejoice in it. Help us take this posture of prayer even right now as we sing to the praise of your glorious grace. In your name we pray.